0: What's going on guys? Welcome back to the podcast. Hey, I want to kick off by saying big shout out to 511 Tactical for uh, hosting us on Friday, last Friday, for our Overland Basics and Stop the Bleed course that we ran. You know, it's the first time that we ran the Overland Basics. Basically, the same fundamentals that you use in setting up your go rig are the same fundamentals you would use in going on an Overland trip to a destination. So I just wanted to uh, give a big shout out to 5.11 Tactical. We had about 50 people show up for the class and uh, continue to look out for those because we will be doing more 5.11 Tactical hosted events across the country from here on out. In fact, next year I have a plan to be on the road most of the year to be able to teach across the U.S. in those 5.11 Tactical stores. But it's a great venue because obviously it's a, a tactical textile equipment uh, pro shop and then you get the opportunity in that setting to have subject matter experts come in there and teach And it's all free, which is the which is one of the best things about it. It's all free uh, No catches um, And I, I plan to be in Oregon plan to be in Cali plan to be all over the place and I'm looking forward to it uh, so I did that 511 tactical event on Friday went into Saturday and we were hosted by pro gun club Vegas Look, if you've never been to Pro uh, Gun Club in in Las Vegas, they're open seven days a week uh, for all your range needs. You could blow stuff up. You could shoot stuff. It's a pretty cool venue. Great host. Uh, We go there a few times a year. We're going to pick that pace up probably four to six times a year. Uh, But we did pistol on Saturday and carbine on Sunday, gunfighter carbine on Sunday. And I want to say, you know, a lot of new faces that were out there. But a great experience as always to learn from the students. We had Henderson SWAT guys. We had Las Vegas PD out there. Big shout out to Marlon and the guys. All these guys are super motivated. And obviously half the class in open enrollment was civilians. And they were just open to learning. And it was a great experience. I always have a good time when I go to Vegas. Vegas isn't my cup of tea. Like I'm not a fan of casinos and gambling and um, bars and clubs and stuff like that. But on the outskirts of town you can always find cool stuff to do so yeah thank you vegas for hosting me and hope to be out there soon i'll be in actually series california on october 19th and 20th if any of you guys or gals are interested there's still uh slots available at philcraftsurvival.com for pistol and both carbine hey let's get in the ad spot real quick before we uh, go into the podcast so I want to give a big shout-out to Black Riffle Coffee Company for being a sponsor of Philcraft Survival, the podcast. Philcraft um, 20 could save you 20% on checkout at blackriflecoffee.com. I'm a big fan of their coffee, big fan of the company. I've known Evan for a long time, and um, good to good to always see him grow, and especially with all the advocacy of them giving back, uh, super motivated to be part of that, so thank you to Black Riffle Coffee Company. Also, this podcast is sponsored by TriArcSystems.com Hey, I ran my TriArc carbine this weekend and again, flawless. Uh, I never have issues with that. I even did a stress shoot on pistol day in which the guys and gals had to pick up the TriArc and go to work on a steel target from 100 meters out. Everybody was able to pick that thing up and run it. Uh, No issues, no malfunctions. It's one of the most solid carbines that that I recommend. Uh, Triarch and BCM are my number one recommended AR-15s. Make sure you use Phil Craft on checkout to save 5% on any build, on anything, uh, at their store at TriarcSystems.com, And that's T-R-I-A-R-C Systems.com. Also, big shout out to KillCliff.com. They support the Navy Seal Foundation, which does good things for the Navy Seal community. They also are making some of the best natural energy drinks on the market. Look, I, I have... Uh, They're new flavors, but I'm going to get into that new CBD. I'm a proponent and advocate for CBD. It's helped me with anxiety, with stress, everything else. They make a drink with CBD in it. I'm super pumped to get that. But you guys could use Survival One Zero, Survival One Zero, to save ten percent on checkout at KillCliff.com. Hey guys, today's podcast we're going to talk about. Um, you know, it's always humbling when I go to Vegas. Right. And I see the uh, Mandela Bay and understand, you know, I have, I have friends that were there that kicked in the door on the active shooter that were on the scene as first responders. And it's uh it's troubling. It's it's a it's an anxious feeling that I get when I look at the Mandela Bay and I I think about all those victims of that mass shooting in which 58 people were killed. More were injured. Hundreds of people were injured. Injured. Some estimates are up to 900 people were actually injured during that mass shooting. And so, the things that I think about are how could we have saved more? How could we have um, had better response times? You know, how could we have been better prepared as individuals? You know, what went wrong? What are some things that things uh, people could have done better? There's a lot of good people who died that day, doing their best um, with what they understood and the knowledge base they had. And there's a lot of heroes that went into the crowd during the gunfire to help and assist people, uh, and and paid the ultimate sacrifice for it. When I was in Vegas, I think about that stuff, and it it motivates me. You know, it motivates me to get off my butt and to focus my attention on preparedness. And and not to check the block. You know, sometimes I get lot lazy and complacent as well. You know, do I need to do my everyday carry check? Do I need to carry a pistol into this establishment? Is it safe? Is it not safe? And so I go through these complacency issues as well because I live as a civilian. So I, I just stress that because I want you guys and gals to always focus on being prepared. It's not anxiety. It's not... Paranoia, it's in preparedness, it's deliberate thinking and forecasting your future. And if you could do anything in everything that might cost you a little time, maybe a little bit of money to to better prepare you, then so be it. You know, it's worth obviously uh, the sacrifice uh, if it's something that could save your life. You know, today we're talking about this third pillar, but before we get there, I want to mention about a post that I did about Philadelphia and the fact that um, even though they allow concealed carry permits, they haven't issued a lot of concealed carry permits. And Philadelphia as a city in Pennsylvania is one of the most restricted areas to carry a gun. A whole bunch of people came out of the woodwork with comments and I think miseducation and misunderstanding their own individual rights to carry Philadelphia has the most amount, besides obviously Washington, D.C., has the most amount of federal land, including parks, government buildings, institutions, restrictions from carrying a pistol in proximity to schools, um, and the list goes on, including business establishments which don't allow for the carry of concealed carry permits or, or weapons. So, yes... Your government, your state government, has said that you can apply for concealed carry permit. But they are restricting the amount of concealed carry permits they are issuing. And on top of that, sidewalks is really the only place that you could legally carry a firearm in the, the city of Philadelphia. As opposed to, uh, to allowing you to carry as a blanket uh, state law anywhere in the actual city. Um, Look, I'm not attacking Philadelphia. It's a problem. It's a systemic problem in many major cities in the United States of America. Think about, you know, some people said, well, it wouldn't be worth it. Like, why would you draw a gun against armed bandits or robbers? Um, Well, I don't know. Maybe because I want to defend my life and I don't want to take the chance that they're just going to tape me up. Uh, strap my hands behind my back and then steal everything I have in the store, maybe I want to defend my life because I don't want to be a victim of violence. I don't want to get killed. Who wants to take that chance? If brazen robbers are coming up in an establishment in broad daylight with ski masks and guns looking to rob, who's to say they're not willing to kill? And they are, obviously. Philadelphia has a significant crime significant crime statistics that uh, would shock you, along with Baltimore, along with Chicago, even Las Vegas. Uh, I was surprised to see that Las Vegas is only safer than 14% of other major cities in America. There was 200 murders last year, and I know it doesn't include the metropolitan area, um, but or it, that statistic is not, is including the metropolitan area. But does it matter? It's still high in crime. It's, in fact, it's 30% higher than the national average. I don't care if it's 1% higher, that's still too high. So I want citizens able to protect themselves with no caveats, no restrictions, no, no catches. So that's the reason I posted that, and that's the reason I'm stating it. In fact, if you're in Philadelphia and you think you can carry concealed anywhere in the city, well, you're probably breaking laws. And to each their own. I'm not saying that... I'm not judging you based on your abilities to uh, carry where you want to. Um, You're a big boy. You put on your big boy pants every morning. What I'm saying is the city hasn't facilitated your ability to carry. Because it's restricted everywhere. In fact, uh, that's not coming from me. That's coming from a Philadelphia police officer who I talked to. Uh, Anyways, moving on. So today we're going to talk about... The third pillar of preparedness, which is your safe house or your home. Now, we talked about the first pillar of preparedness. I actually talked about it in depth at the 5.11 Tactical uh, Seminar, but I also did a YouTube video on it. If you didn't know it, we are doing a YouTube video every week, which includes a post about survival, about tactics, about reviews, gear, etc. The list goes on, but every single week we're doing a lawn form uh, YouTube video, which means it's not going to be two minutes. We're not doing highlight videos. We're doing educational videos that are educating you in preparedness. We already dropped the first pillar of preparedness, which is up on YouTube right now. You can see it right now. Uh, just Google the Craft Survival channel on YouTube or put in Craft Survival. And this Wednesday, which is in a couple days, we're dropping the second pillar of preparedness, which is mobility or your go rig or your vehicle. Um... And then uh, probably in a couple more weeks, because safe house is a little bit more complex, we're talking about safe house. So the idea is the first pillar of preparedness, you have what you have on your person, meaning not you and your vehicle. I mean, when you go to work, you park your vehicle, when you walk blocks to get to your workplace, what do you have on your person in order to be able to provide uh, survival or defend your life or life-sustaining equipment that's going to assist you. And the second pillar of performance, we're talking about mobility, which is the extension of that individual capability. You know, if you have the capacity and capability, then you have plenty of room in your go rig or your vehicle. I don't care if you drive a front-wheel drive Honda Civic, you have a trunk. Fill that trunk with preparedness equipment and use it as a facilitator to help you in your preparedness. And then obviously getting to the the safe house. The idea behind a safe house, I call it safe house and that's kind of a a special operations term. The term safe house is a basically a location in which you could resupply, refit, organize, secure yourself and continue to conduct operations out of that safe house. It has different meanings for different organizations, but generally speaking, it's meant to facilitate or sustain long term survival um, one thing people don't really do nowadays is look at their home i don 't care if it's an apartment a condo or an actual house you people don't really look at their home as a uh, facilitation mechanism for survival meaning the groceries that you have in your cabinets and the food that you have in your fridge are the extent of your of your uh food supply, and your water supply, and there's no extension of that. You're just living day-to-day or day-to-week. In fact, I think it's kind of odd that you know Costco and Sam's Club made us start thinking about, well, if I'm using toilet paper and I use it every day, why don't I just buy it in bulk, save some money, and then stockpile it? Well, literally, that is the idea behind preparing yourself in a safe house, which is You need to be able to stockpile yourself, understanding that the infrastructure, which means the grocery chains, the supply chain management to supply those grocery chains, stores, electricity that run debit cards, gas stations, and the list goes on, might not be readily available when a catastrophe happens. Look, it doesn't have to be a man made disaster. We don't have to be hit by an electromagnetic pulse attack. We're talking a tornado a hurricane now typically the the national average is about 1 to 3 days like 3 days max for lights being turned back on but there have been instances even in uh, obviously in modern history uh, recent examples of when electricity hasn't been restored for weeks and even months let's take puerto rico for example there's still parts of puerto rico's infrastructure that's not even up and running today uh A long, long time after the hurricane struck Puerto Rico. Um, There could be parts of your town where you live in a particular town. You don't have access to a vehicle, for example. You don't have family there. You don't have a vehicle because you don't have gas in your vehicle. And then your individual town is shut down. How are you going to sustain life? Now, FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency does have mechanisms to establish forward operating bases that allow for the resupply or the supply of food, water, uh, health, uh, first aid, etc. But you need to be independent of that just in case. And so that's the, the thinking behind the safe house. So what's the start point? So the start point for me is always the staples of survival. So let's talk about a few of them. Food. You have to store food. You have to absolutely store food. Um, if you draw our food, you're looking at a minimum of a year shelf life. If you can food, you're, you're looking at five years, potentially 10 years, depending on what the food is. Um, if you're looking at dry goods, a year to 10 years, depending on what kind of dry goods it is, dehydrated uh, MREs. Uh, Or dehydrated food versus meals ready to eat for the military have different shelf lives. So you have to be cognizant and understand the limitations of the food that you store. Are you storing the food indoors versus outdoors, maybe in a shed or maybe underneath a tarp? So you have to consider that. I recommend storing dry food or dry storage food which includes mountain house mills that are dehydrated mills where you add water that have a reasonable shelf life. Um, I also recommend that you have jarred and canned foods, but you cycle through those jarred and canned foods, meaning you take those foods and you consume them and then shelve new foods um, to resupply that and completely keep it in a chain of custody that replenishes the fresh supply. Um, something I was talking to Mike Pfeiffer from last line of defense was, was canning and Mormon, Mormon the Mormon church has canneries. In fact, there's a cannery uh, in Phoenix that I'm going to today. Uh, canneries are literally places where you can go and buy canned food, including canned meats from the Mormon church, because that's what they do. And they make a, a, some extra money, but you could buy that food in supply and store it inside your house. That's a good start point. You can go to Sam's Club. You can go to Costco. And, you know, if you're going to Costco and you're buying 95% of your food to resupply your current supply of fridged and cabinetry uh, type based foods that you commonly eat, take 5% of your income that you would spend at the grocery store and spend it on replenishing or re upping or supplying your. Stored safe house goods because you need it. Water, water is unique in that a lot of people, depending on where they live, look at water in different ways. If you have a generator, for example, at your house and you have a well, well then water probably isn't going to be an issue for you. If you live off the city supply, like a main uh, city supply, then water could be an issue, i.e. If it's a man-made catastrophe, they could be contaminating the water that you drink, so that could be the catastrophe in itself. If it's the infrastructure that collapses under a natural or man-made disaster, then you don't want to drink the water, uh, and and if you if you did drink the water, uh, you might not have access because you don't have power to resupply the water, or you might have a limited supply because the actual supply chain uh, in the logistical. Um, aspect will not be able to supply the hoses, the pipes, the infrastructure to supply running water to your house. And that's a a huge consideration. I remember I used to have a, a well and my well pump went out, but I didn't have a manual pump. And so it was on a weekend and then I didn't have access to a store to go fix it. And so I had to wait and we didn't have any water whatsoever. So you have to consider Uh, those things when looking at water. Something else to think about is if you do have running water because you have electricity and you understand that a natural, more than likely natural catastrophe is going to strike, take the time to look at your supply of containers. In special operations and reconnaissance, we used to carry all the water. In fact, we still carry a, a large portion of our resupply as water, but we also started looking at routes that would navigate us through water. So then we would just have to have containers and then means to sanitize that water, which is super important. Um, So look at the containers that you have and maybe, you know, take, you can go to Walmart, for example, and buy good containers that are 5, 10, 15 and up gallon containers that you could put on the shelf in dry storage where there's no water in it. So you're not uh, getting mildewy water or bad water. You don't have to keep it uh, supplied. But you know you have containers just in case that you could fill up. I recommend having a gallon of water per person per day. Yes, a gallon. That's a lot of water. But if you think about it, between the water that you consume, hygiene, personal hygiene, which includes washing your hands, washing your body with soap, um, and using water for food, which includes the water that goes in your dry, uh, dehydrated meals you need a gallon of water per person per day. That's a bare minimum. Um, if you think about how much water that's going to be per household, that could be a lot of water. Some other considerations to think about are catching water. I mean, I live in northern Arizona where the water during monsoon season, it rains pretty much every evening. So yes, it's a dry climate, it's high desert, but there are periods of rain. So a a rain collection or catch device Could be beneficial. So there's different versions of it. There's ones that take gutters. That the runoff from the gutters. Go straight into the resupply. There's ones that use uh, catch devices on rooftops. That basically just have large surface area. That catches water. And then it has a means of actually pumping it into your house even. Pay attention to um, actually those types of devices. Because not only will they benefit you. Um, in survival and preparedness, but also they'll benefit you in just general economics. Like if you're trying to save money, instead of using the water off the city or even using water out of your well, you could use water that you catch in rain. That's always something to consider. The next thing I look at is meds. You know, if you're a type 2 diabetic or even type 1 diabetic and you have insulin requirements, how long uh, supply of insulin do you have? One of the issues that I used to run into is uh, even meds. You know, I would go overseas and I'd be operating in a pretty remote, austere environment where I didn't have access to a, a medical doctor or uh, a medic. So, if you don't have that access, you have to be able to treat yourself and diagnose yourself, including administering antibiotics, antivirals, um, methylquin for malaria, and the list goes on. So, how do you? kind of store those kind of things. Well you could actually talk to your doctor. I mean if your doctor's switched on, you could say, hey, I'm trying to get a storage of look, they're not, you're not gonna abuse antibiotics. So you might be able to get a storage of antibiotics. If you're like me, for some reason, I mean a lot of people have this, you have extra meds laying around, including Motrin, antibiotics, um, but you need to pay attention to the medications that are important to you that are life-saving or life-critical to you now, um, it might be anti-cholesterol or uh, uh, cholesterol medicine or, or beta blockers or whatever it may be, what's gonna happen when the infrastructure shuts down and the pharmacy shut down and you have no access to those kind of medications? It could get pretty crazy, it could get pretty ugly and people are gonna get desperate. So you need to stockpile that. At a minimum, you need to have a 30-day supply, a minimum, A 30-day supply. Communications. If you're looking at communications, uh, you're probably thinking cell phone. But remember, when the infrastructure shuts down, the first thing that's going to go out is the electricity. The electricity powers the cell phone towers that typically operate your internet going to your home and also operate the GSM and CDMA network that you are dependent on with your cell phone. So imagine right now you didn't have any means of communication. How are you going to communicate to your family? Do you have radios? Do you have handhelds? Do you have VHF, UHF, HAM? The list goes on. Start thinking about that. Because even if you have a simple um, you know, handheld radios, let's say it's uh, uh, Motorola handhelds, that's better than nothing, line of sight. Because you could at least give it to somebody that you're with. And if you're operating in an environment, even in vehicles, where you're going to go to a store together, or maybe even do an emergency per, uh, preparedness activities like search and recovery, foraging, the list goes on, having those radios that are battery-powered or even solar-powered is super important. Because that's your, your your real means of communication. I mean, what did we do before cell phones? I had I had a... A yarn line spooled up on cups where I could communicate to my uh, buddy who was my neighbor via comms because that was our only means of communication. Uh, we got a little bit older, we got walkie-talkies, and then that's what we were using, walkie-talkies. But think back to that uh, level. Get radios that you use in your Overland go rigs, but that you could also use in preparedness at your home. Uh, both as a base station Uh, which would allow you to transpond and receive communications on a larger scale, which might have an antenna on your roof, and also mobile comms, which include probably handhelds, uh, maybe even CBs that are rigged into the battery power of your vehicle. Another thing I think about when I'm looking at my safe house is security. How secure is your home? Now, safe house... Look, when you think about safe house, we're planning for the contingency of the worst case scenario. But like I say, with everything that we're doing, by default, preparing for that sets us up for success for the now, for the present. So look at your house right now. Do you have a deadlock lock bolt on the front door of your house? Do you have uh, locked latched windows throughout your home that are double pane and not single pane, which could be cracked with anything? Do you have uh, security bars? Do you have screen doors? Do you have storm doors? Do you have technical reconnaissance or security measures that include CCT uh, TV cameras, closed-circuit uh, television cameras? Uh, what do you have that's helping you with security? Do you have a security system? Now, remember, the contingency, the contingency systems that you put in place change with the worst-case scenario. What do you think men, uh, and I say men, uh, meaning people, are going to do when they're fighting for resources to survive? Hey, I'm in a situation, I'm in the inner city, I have a family, I have to eat. I'm going to go to the store, people are fighting for resources, I have to fight people to get those resources. So what do you think people are going to do? Some people, and I always say this because evil lies amongst us, are going to get desperate, but some people are going to take advantage or exploit the situation. They're going to go door-to-door committing crimes, stealing things, tangible things, and, and doing their worst. So are you prepared to defend yourself in your safe house, in your home? I think it starts with standoff. The first thing I like to do is like kind of look at it in concentric circles where I look at the center of my home. Maybe it's the safe room in that home as being, uh, we would look at it as the crisis point, but in this case, we're looking at it as the defense point, like the nucleus. Outside of that, uh, stretching it all the way out, I want standoff from the time in which somebody arrives via a vehicle or on foot to my front door. I also want, um, <laughs> this is uh, uh, funny to say, but I want grazing fire, which means I want unobstructed views And unobstructed obstacles to allow me to work fields of fire and grazing fire, which means fire above the ground that gives an equal spread of fire uh, across my entire yard or across my entire property. Because if you impede your own ability to defend yourself from your home across your yard or across your land, then you're impeding your ability to defend yourself. So if... If you have like, uh, if you take the patrol base, uh, which is where this is coming from, obviously, if you take if you take the patrol base example, you want an outer perimeter, and that inner perimeter is going to be able to to fight defending against people who infiltrate through the outer perimeter, which means that outer wall. I'm a big fan of compounds. In fact, my next home, which is going to be either in uh, northern Montana or northern Wyoming or northern Idaho. I want to have um, that standoff and I want to have that outer perimeter wall like a compound because I want to be able to defend myself from the inner compound. So how do you do this? Well, one, you look through your windows and look through your doors and look out at your own terrain. That's how you do it. In the military, we used to do this and, and make range cards. Now, should you make a range card? I would say, why not? If you have the time and you're serious about preparedness, look at... The windows in which you would look out to defend your uh, defend your home. And then measure the distance with a rangefinder or, hell, walk it. Pace count it from the window to certain obstacles. Like, hey, if I look out my window and I see my mailbox. Well, that's 100 meters away because I have a lot of land. Well, the next obstacle to the fence line is 200 meters. It'd probably be important for you to understand the distance there. So you can understand... How soon that potential bad guy could get to you by walking from 200 meters in? And then how effective is your firearm in engaging that threat? And what's the hold off? Am I going to store a pistol next to next to that window or have a pistol with me next to that window? Well, you'd probably be at a disadvantage. Maybe I'd have a variable optic like a 1-6 to six Vortex HD and then I'd have a, a longer uh range rifle to be able to reach to be able to reach out and touch beyond that distance. Range cards are smart because it gives you situational awareness in the specific positions you're going to be in uh, to understand the lay of the land. So it starts with the outer perimeter leading in and then fields of fire. When I get to the structure around me and my family, you really need to pay attention to the details. What kind of walls do you have? Is it slate? Is it brick? Is it simple plywood and sheetrock? There's a big difference. You want to be shocked, go ahead and YouTube search um, uh, shooting through sheetrock. And you'll be surprised at how how many sheetrock sheets you can get through with even small caliber rounds. So when you look at that, you look at the reinforcing of that defensive position to defend life. If you're in a house that's made of stucco, sheetrock, and plywood, you're at a disadvantage. How can you change that realistically? Well, maybe you look at your, your safe room in your safe house and say, Hey, I don't have enough money to brick up you know, my house, my entire house, but I do have enough money to reinforce the walls in my safe room. A safe room, which we'll talk about here in a couple minutes, A safe room is essentially somewhere where you would collapse in as the last defensive position where you would maybe put your family while you're running around trying to defend the house or somewhere where you would go as a last resort to defend life. Typically has a landline to be able to reach out. It might even have a port for oxygen. It might even be a a bunker style safe room that's lower in the ground that's away from the main house. It might be hidden. It might be... Um, defended with extra rebar, extra material, extra security in the door like a cipher lock and the list goes on. But you have to have a defendable position to fight from. I pay attention to locking mechanisms. Like I've been to a a lot of breaching courses in the military but also in my government contracting job and started realizing the, the vulnerabilities of trying to defend your life, but also how to breach into specific types of houses. And I was shocked by how easy it is to, to breach into most houses. Um, most houses can be breached into with mechanical tools, a sledgehammer, a hooligan, an axe. Uh, these are all easy things. So I, I beg you to, to pay attention to the doors that you use. Are they hollow core? If you have hollow core exterior doors, you need to change them as soon as possible. Some of the best doors are steel doors, but they're more expensive. If you have a steel door, you need to look at the, the actual hinges and look at the actual threshold that holds that door on its hinges. Because a lot of people pay attention to the door, but they don't p- pay attention to the material around the door. In fact, uh, I've breached houses where the door was made of reinforced steel. And then you go one foot off the door... And you could basically breach through the door and then rip the door literally off the hinges because the material on the exterior parts of the door is stucco. Um, or even even something like center block where you could easily knock that out and then take you know, a winch, cable, you could take a, uh, a mechanical or even a ballistic means and rip that door off its hinges. So you need to look at that. Uh, some of the best things I recommend is looking at dead bolts because... Uh, security measure-wise, most houses that look that run specific key sets, deadbolt locks, etc., can be broken into with a kick in the right place. A flathead screwdriver to pry the door or, or lock, and then a kick in the right place. And that's scary when you think about it. So pay attention to those things. Windows, super important. We like to focus our attention on doors, but what about a window? What kind of glass is in your window? A lot of older homes, even homes that I've been lived in, had single pane windows. You could shatter a single pane window with one punch of your fist. You try that with a dual pane, and it's a lot more difficult because the amount of material uh, and the type of material. Uh weatherproofing or uh, weatherproofed windows is a, a good example of that, where they're where they're better reinforced and more secure than a standard window. Also, you know, when you look at windows. And you look at reinforcing those windows, bars aren't just for criminal-ridden areas. They're also good for uh, defending against uh, obstacles or uh, flying debris or even, obviously, criminal elements that are trying to get inside. But a lot of those cages don't offer the best protection, especially when they're on the exterior part of the the, uh, house. I've actually been in Iraq and breached houses where I've hooked up winch cables or toe straps to the front of uh, cages or rebar that were in front of windows and doors and just simply ripped it down. It's not that difficult to do. But you need to pay attention to windows because windows is absolutely a weakness in your protection. Let's talk about uh, the inner workings of your home. I always recommend, like when I consult and teach people about self-defense in their home, I always recommend that people identify safe rooms Where their families and themselves can retreat to to defend life. There's a lot of people who think that it's going to be black and white when somebody kicks in their front door, they're going to defend themselves and everything's going to be okay. But a lot of the times it's not going to be like that. You could be in your bed with your spouse, with your kids being in their bedroom somewhere away from you when you hear the front door kicked in. What are you going to do then? In the middle of the night. In the middle of darkness. What if they cut your security cameras and your electricity off? What are you going to do then? Do you have a light? Do you have a pistol? Do your kids know where to move or where to go at the call of a pro-word? I'm always big on pro-words, especially for kids. Because it lo- it tells them to do an action. Instead of contemplating or thinking about a decision. It forces them to do something. So you say to them, Irene. And they run. They immediately run to where they have to go. That's super important, especially when you look at survival and then where children fall on the scale of living or dying in catastrophes. They don't have the developed prefrontal cortex, and they can't make those uh, rational cognitive decisions. You have to give them direction, just like a private in the the infantry. It has to be very clear, um, concise, and to the point. And they have to be able to immediately react off of that. So identify a safe room. I don't like safe rooms that have exits. Like I don't have I don't like safe rooms that have windows. It's not safe if the bad guy can come around the back side of that window and throw a grenade, worst case scenario, or smash the window and hurt people inside of it by just sticking a gun inside of it. It has to be defendable, right? And most closets and most small rooms that we think of safe rooms have small windows. Well, that's not defendable. If you can't see out of it because it's eight feet in the air, uh, then you're not going to be able to defend yourself. But if it's a a room where you retreat back into, you have one door where you know if the bad guy comes through that door, you can engage them, um, then you're good. And speaking on that, I want to talk a little bit about some of the laws that tie into uh, what I'm talking about with the safe house. The Castle Doctrine, known as the Castle Law, it's a legal doctrine that designates uh, a person's house or their occupied place, for example, a vehicle or a home, as a place where they have the protection and immunities where they could use deadly force, up, up to deadly force to def- to defend themselves. That includes from an intruder, from uh, somebody who kicks in their front door. If they If you are on your property, you don't have a duty to retreat. Now, there are some caveats to that law there are some states that have the law but there are exceptions but the castle doctrine mainly means they have it lessens the duty for them to retreat and they could defend them li- their lives. look if a guy kicks in your front door and he doesn't have a gun in his hand and he's coming at you through the front door, their intention is to harm you right there is no question about that there, you know they might be kicking in the front door to get a TV. But when you present that firearm, they have a decision to make, right? They're at the crossroads. Well, if they're there for a TV, they're obviously going to pop smoke and break contact. They're going to get out of there. But you don't have to announce yourself in the castle law adoption. Um, I'm not going to announce myself as a law-abiding citizen with a firearm in the dark when some, some lurker is in the kid's room or in your living room or inside your mother-in-law's room. Or in your own bedroom. So you have the right to defend your life uh, life uh, under the castle doctrine. And remember, justifiable justifiable homicide and self-defense, which happens to occur inside one's home, is distinct as a matter of law. From castle doctrine, because the mere occurrence of trespassing and occasionally a subjective requirement of fear, is sufficient to invoke the castle doctrine, the burden of proof of fact is less, much less challenging than that of a justifying, uh, justifying a homicide in self-defense. If you perceive uh, a life-threatening posture, a person where you feel an imminence of deadly force, like they're going to kill or harm you, and you are in danger or in fear of your life, then you have the right under the castle doctrine to defend your life. You know the history comes from uh, a kind of legal concept that stems from Western civilization uh stimming back to English common laws. Um so there's a lot of history behind it. But let me let me give you some examples of the way they lay lay it out. There's stand your ground, there's stand your ground in practice, there's stand your ground from within one's vehicles, there's castle doctrine only with a duty to retreat in public, and then there's a duty to, re- to retreat. So I, I recommend everybody, depending on what state you're in, uh research the laws and make sure you understand what you can and can't do in your own home. Uh, I'll read you, I'll read you a couple of states that vary um, uh, completely vary from from each other. Arizona, and I'll read you the law it says a notwithstanding any other provision of this chapter, a person is justified and threatening to use or using physical force or deadly physical force against another person if the person reasonably believes himself, or another person to be in imminent peril of death or serious physical injury. It doesn't have to be a peril of death. Like if somebody comes in your home and they are confronted by your spouse and you think that the person is going to harm you with serious physical injury or peril of death, you could use deadly force. Uh, I'll continue to read. And the person against whom the physical force or deadly force is threatened or used was in the process of of unlawfully or forcibly entering, meaning like kicking in your front door, or had unlawfully or forcibly entered a residential structure or occupied vehicle, or had removed or is attempting to remove another person against the other person's will from the residential structure or occupied vehicle. So you're sitting in traffic in Arizona. Somebody road rages, opens your door, goes to grab you and rip you out of your car. Can you use deadly force? The answer is yes. Under the castle doctrine, you can use deadly force. I.e., occupied vehicle or had removed or was attempting to remove another person against the other person's will. A person has no duty to retreat before threatening or using. Threatening is just a, is just a uh, courtesy. Or using physical force or deadly physical force pursuant to this section. So that's Arizona. Thank God I live in a state uh, that cares about its law-abiding and not about criminals. If you road rage and you go to pull somebody out of the car in Arizona, be prepared to be shot in the face by grandma. Because people around here don't mess around. You're in California. You are just exploited and you're just being a, you're just a victim. Uh, more than likely, if you go to drag somebody out of their vehicle, they don't have a gun. And you'll get away with it. So let me read um, let me read California Doctrine, which actually isn't the most strict uh, California doctrine or, or uh, castle doctrine, but let me read what it says: Any por- any person using force intended or likely to cause death or great bodily injury within his or her residence shall be pr- presumed to have held a reasonable fear of imminent peril of death or injury um not a member of the family or household who unlawfully and forcefully enters or has unlawfully and forcibly entered the resident and the person using the force knew or had reason to believe. That's very wordy. Let me read you the, the uh, uh, deluso versus Boone uh, this, that changed the precedent here. It is urged that the owner of real estate has a right to enter upon and enjoy his own property. Undoubtedly, if he can do so without forcible disturbance of the possession of another but the peace and good order of society require that he shall not be permitted to enter against the will of the occupant, and hence the common law right to use all necessary force has been taken away. He may, be, he may be wrongfully kept out of possession, but he cannot be permitted to take the law into his own hands and redress his own wrongs. The remedy must be sought through those peaceful agencies which a civilized community provides for all of its members. That's all obviously old doctrine. But the state of California actually has... A stand your ground in practice law, right? Meaning uh, there's, there is some caveats, um, but you can stand your ground. Um, so Delaware, for example, has a no duty to retreat in home. So you don't have to retreat. The Castle Doctrine applies in your home. But you do have a duty to retreat in public, which means if you're confronted in public and you have the opportunity to retreat in public, uh, you may... You, you have to retreat and you can't use deadly force when confronted, including your vehicle. Um. Let me find one. Let me find one. That actually, there's one that actually is uh, a duty to retreat in red, which is the good old state. I don't even know what that state is. Um, I was looking at the, the case law, and let me find one. I believe it's New Hampshire. New Hampshire is the one. Okay, so it says New Hampshire is not required to retreat if he or she within his or her dwelling, is... Okay, that's not it. Here we go. It's New Jersey. Retreat is required if actor knows he can avoid necessity of deadly force and complete safety. Except not obliged to retreat from dwelling unless the initial aggressor. So in your home you can, but uh, uh, you, you can use deadly force, but you have to retreat if if the actor knows he can avoid necessity of deadly force in complete safety. So that's very subjective. I mean, what does that mean? I mean, if you're in a position like this guy in the gas station, he got convicted of murder. He gets pushed down on his back, hits his head, and then. Shoots this guy who pushes pushes him down in the chest. Obviously, he had a in this case in Florida, he had a lot of uh, priors and history. But it it gets very very subjective when you look at the law, and people would say the law is very objective. I think it's very subjective because it's open to interpretation. Because my de- my definition of of uh, in my head when I look at duty re- to retreat, like. You might think hiding behind a car is retreating, but it's not because that person can kill you from the other side of the car. So if I have nowhere to go, I might use deadly force. So it all matters and you know, long story short, it, it depends on your state. Please take the time to go onto your local uh, state laws and look at the duty to retreat, your self-defense rights, and the castle doctrine because it varies state to state. Something to think about in the safe room too is your Ability to communicate. I've actually consulted for some people where we went around and we looked at their house and went into their safe house that was designated a safe room or went to their uh, the room itself and realized there was no reception in that room because of how deep it was in the house. So an option for you would have would be uh, rig a manual manually wired alarm system meaning not using Bluetooth or wireless or the Wi-Fi but manually wired alarm system where you could push a button in that room or your kids can push a button in that room to set off an alarm, an audible alarm that's going to let people know that you're in danger. You get with your neighbors. You say, hey, if you ever hear this alarm and it's on for uh, more than this period of time, please call 911 because something's going on. Um, Also, uh, it's having manual comms or some other form of comms is going to allow you to communicate, obviously, to the outside world. I recommend a landline at a minimum to be able to communicate to the outside world uh, if your cell phone doesn't work because the infrastructure is down. Next thing, the next thing I'm going to talk about is technical security. You know, a lot of people don't think about uh, technical technical security and the benefits of it. You can go to Costco right now and find a whole wireless setup, which includes closed circuit television cameras that you could hook up anywhere in your home reasonably priced for a couple hundred bucks that ties in your cell phone where you can monitor movement movement is actually registered with light so if the light changes it kicks off a text message uh, a Bluetooth activation maybe even a manual RF trigger a radio frequency trigger that lets you know that something's been triggered that technology is super beneficial and protecting your home when you're there and when you're not there. For situational awareness, uh, I would want some technical devices in my house, which I do have. Including lighting systems. Uh, I have motion detected lighting systems, which detect uh, animals, critters, people that are in the vicinity of my home. Which you could set via sensor to allow, to allow you the early warning if somebody's there. Uh, and that's super important. The ability to have a camera forward of your home, uh, whether it's right outside your home or on the outer perimeter of your home, is super beneficial in giving you situational awareness. Something else I want to talk about in in developing your safe house is thinking about sustaining yourself long-term. I have a 17-kilowatt generator at my house. That 17-kilowatt generator is used for Uh, It's fueled by propane, right? And I have a large propane uh, tank on on site. But if the power goes out, I have electricity to partitioned portions of my house. That is super important when you're looking at um, long-term survival because the electricity more than likely is not going to survive. And your individual sustainment depends on your individual capability at your home. Something else to consider... Are large-scale water tanks and fuel points how are you storing fuel I store 75 gallons in my truck at all times which means I have 600 plus miles I'm sorry uh, depending on the vehicle uh, 600 a minimum plus miles of fuel for every vehicle that I own which is huge I mean that's a lot of fuel 75 gallons is almost 600 pounds of fuel that is a lot of fuel that I have in my vehicle sitting in my driveway at all times. That's a great storage device. If you don't have that, just get gas cans and put them in an outside shed or, an, or your garage. So you could have fuel on, on in storage ready for your vehicles or ready for your generators just in case you need it. Um, also, I want you to look at uh, long-term sustainment of food and even thinking about water. Um, Look, outside of your own place, water is typically everywhere in the United States. You're not going to run into issues with procuring or acquiring water. But you need the ability to be able to sanitize it. So chlorine dioxide, um, iodine tablets, uh, you can go to REI and get uh, different uh, versions of it. Even household bleach will do that. Also, you can grow your own food. I mean, think about it. If you have the ability with land... To you know, put up a greenhouse or put out barrels or make crates where you can grow your own food, you're at a huge advantage. Not only is it fun involving you, your spouse, your family, whatever, maybe even just yourself, it's also a staple in sustaining yourself. So keeping seeds on hand. I mean, you should have a collection of seeds. That way, uh, if something does happen, you could bury those seeds and start growing your own food. Potatoes, uh, tomatoes, all the basic vegetables are easily procured. You can go online and buy actually a variety packs of those different foods that you can grow in a matter of weeks that are going to lend themselves to sustaining your your, or replenishing your food supply but sustaining your long-term survival. Something else to think about is mental modeling. I like to look at mental modeling because it's a creative way – for you to figure out the best tactics, techniques, and procedures in order to facilitate survival. So let's say you're looking at self-defense. You might ask yourself, "Hey, uh, honey, how are we going to defend our lives when the kid's bedroom is right next to the entryway, and we're here where we're at? Well, what should we do? Well, maybe you want to lock. Have a way to lock your children's door. Maybe you want a way." to secure your kids as a primary when something happens where one parent goes to the kids' room and one parent goes to check out what the noise was or what the situation was. Maybe you have a pro-word or an alarm system that you ring that allows the kids to know no matter what time it is to evacuate the room and immediately go into the safe room. Maybe the safe room is your bedroom or the closet in your bedroom. So you need to get them there as soon as possible. Maybe it's the closet inside their bedroom. Whatever it may be, you, you start creating a plan by asking the question, which is super important in self-defense. When I think about self-defense too, here's my recommendation for, for carry. I have a SIG 220, which is a forty five caliber pistol that's bedside with a light attached to it for self-defense in the home. I want that because I want a heavier caliber round. I want a light attached to the gun because I'm only going to use that light because I know the the outline of my house. I'm only going to use that light in the event that I have to positively identify a threat. So by the time the light hits him, it's going to be too late for him. I'm not going to use the light to stream it through my house so they can identify me. Because they're at the disadvantage because they typically don't know the layout of your house. I also have a handheld light that's separate from that that's sitting next to the nightstand as well. Because you want to be able to use both. Or if you have to, you can hand it off to your spouse. I also have a trauma kit in the bedroom just in case. Because if I retreat, I'm retreating back to my bedroom. That's my safe room. So I want a med kit, a significant med kit, just in case somebody was injured and we have to retreat. Or you sustain injuries along the way inside that safe room. That is my last cover concealed position to defend life. So, mental modeling is gonna allow you to kind of work out these thoughts, these ideas, and it's only gonna benefit you just talking about it. Hey guys, that's all I have for the podcast today. I was gonna keep it kind of short. Uh, I enjoy these talks about pillars of preparedness because it's a definitive way to lay out and articulate uh, the way in which you could prepare you and your family, starting with pillar one, pillar two, and pillar three. The next thing that we're gonna talk about is the foundation and the roof. That sustain and capture all, this thing, all these things together. If you didn't know it, the foundation is your network. It's the network that you have in your tribe. The umbrella or the roof is the mindset. And, and those are going to be the next things that we talk about. Um, hey guys, I appreciate all that you guys do for Craft Fieldcraft Survival. com at Craft Survival. We also have at Fieldcraft Mobility. Uh, Raul just posted a whole bunch of training courses that we have, even leading into 2020. Um, We have Joel, which is a former Marsock guy. Raul, former Chicago PD, um, also former Army guy. Uh, Both of them great trainers. We also have Kevin. Uh, Kevin's going to be in town actually next weekend teaching a um, a designated marksmanship rifle course, which is going to be a great course for all you guys and gals who are looking for basic to intermediate Maybe you have a gun that you haven't shot. We'll come train with Kevin for the weekend. It's actually a really good price course for Saturday and Sunday. Where Saturday's all ballistics. um, All the things that you need to know before you go to the range. Um, And then you go to the range on Sunday and work all the way out to 1,000 yards. Which is huge for people shooting uh, typical rifles. I mean, you might have a deer rifle. But you might not know the limitations or even the capability of that rifle. Training with Kevin is going to give you that opportunity. And obviously, I'll be in Series, California. October 19th and 20th teaching pistol and carbine. I'm trying to line up right now with 511 Tactical uh, to be able to teach out there on that Friday evening, which is kind of an SOP that I like. And then after that, I'll be in Oregon the the following week teaching a a police department, which I'm super excited about. Guys, I hope you have a good week. Uh, Until next time, stay alert, stay alive.